Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Reiner Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. Special thanks go to my supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast and would like to support it, then head over to patreon.com forward slash airspace. There are multiple levels of support, but pledging even a dollar an episode is highly appreciated. Thank you for your support. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff, 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Today I'm speaking to Dr. Steve Bullock. Steve is the Program Director of the Aerospace Engineering Program at the University of Bristol and an engineering researcher in diverse topics such as air-to-air refueling and cooperative control of UAVs. As the Program Director of a leading aerospace engineering program, Steve has a unique vantage point on how the higher education landscape is changing and specifically how technological trends such as aviation sustainability and increasing digitization are changing the requirements of what it means to provide an effective engineering education in the 21st century. As a Teach First ambassador and a presenter of the Cosmic Shed podcast, Steve has a clear passion for education in general and is actively exploring different ways of disseminating technical information to a broad audience. In this episode of the podcast, Steve and I talk about his path into aerospace engineering and how he found his passion for teaching, his PhD work on air-to-air refueling and cooperative control, what he considers to be some of the key challenges in engineering education, and how the aerospace department in Bristol is planning for the future. But now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Steve Bullock. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Hi. So the topic today is engineering education and especially what a university education in aerospace engineering should look like in the modern day with the changing technological trends such as increasing sustainability, digitization, the influence of urban aviation and all of these cool things. Um, so you are the program director of the aerospace engineering program at Bristol University and therefore you've got a really unique vantage point with regards to how you think engineering education uh, might change or needs to change going forward. Um, but before we get to the engineering education side, um, I'd just like you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So how did you get into aerospace engineering and how did you end up where you are today? Okay, um, I'll begin at the beginning. Um, I, I was a, a nerdy kid. Um, I liked maths and physics. Um, I was in the scouts for a bit and, and found that okay. But then I, I heard about the air cadets and I, I joined uh, the air training corps. Um, and, and really enjoyed that. I got into uh, teaching radio skills to more junior cadets, and um, I was I was one of the top hundred marksmen at one point, and, oh, nice. and uh, had this great experience on on camp in Cyprus where we we got to wash the red arrows, which was fun. Um, so I was a a nerd and a, a plain nerd from an early age, uh, and that led naturally to aerospace engineering. Uh, I looked around. Uh, this was back in the 90s uh, at, at the, the courses that I was getting the grades for. I, I was a, 
uh, a fairly good student and, and, and was looking at all the, the top names that everyone will hear of. But, but, but Bristol had a, a particular attraction to me. Um, so I did an aerospace uh, degree, uh, graduated from, from Bristol uh, with a solid 2-1. Uh, I've managed to, to get distracted through a bit of performing arts and, and other bits and bobs during my undergrad. Um, and I'd always thought about going into teaching, but wasn't really sure I wanted to dedicate my life to it. So I found a, a scheme uh, that, that had just started a few years before I was uh, starting to look for graduate jobs uh, called Teach First. Uh, I became a Teach First teacher. You, you get a, an intensive training program over the summer and, and then commit to two years in a, a challenging school. Um, I taught in uh, Wembley in London uh, and then helped set up a, a new school, uh, a new academy in central London. Oh, wow. um, really, really enjoyed it. Liked um, pushing the boundaries of, of how we teach uh, and, and what we teach. Uh, and getting involved with with the the wider sort of extracurricular life in schools, um, really enjoyed a lot of my students, even the even the more uh, challenging <laughs> ones. I, I I really like seeing something click in someone's head, uh, and also giving the sort of wider pastoral support. Um, I um, I then, fairly out of the blue, um, got a, an offer from my old uh, master's supervisor, um, Tom Richardson, who uh, is still in the department here, uh, to, to come back to Bristol for a, a PhD. There, there was funding arranged. It was a, a really interesting uh, industry-focused project. Um, and I, I thought I'd be a little bit selfish and, and, and take three or four years uh, to come back to, to do the PhD, to, to nerd out for a little bit. Um, and uh, then got caught up in, I guess you'd call it higher education reform. Um, the, the UK higher ed sector uh, has gone through some fairly significant policy changes over the last 10, 15 years. Um, and, and there was a, a need for bringing in new ideas to, to the way we teach. Um, uh, there were a few fairly acute crises in terms of diversifying our student body and things like that and, and I had a skill set that, that lent itself to that. Um, I still miss school teaching and, and it might still be in my future somewhere um, but right now I've, I've found a, a, a really useful place for me to be uh, with, with the skill set that I've got uh, and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah I can clearly see that you've got that that skill set and it makes I can, it's now a lot easier for me to put that into perspective where that passion comes from. But so you said you did a PhD. Would you mind briefly talking about um, your area of expertise? I know the only thing I know that it's an air-to-air -air refueling, which sounds super exciting. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about about your PhD? So the the short of it is I uh, spent my PhD making giant robots pretend to be aeroplanes. <laughs> nice. Which was great fun. Um, we uh, we were working with Cobham, uh, who's uh, who are a company. Um, basically, they're, they're they're the people that invented air to air refueling back in the twenties. Flight Refueling Limited became Cobham PLC, um, and currently, it's uh, air to air refueling is only used in the defence sector. Um, if you haven't seen it, then then you get a big tanker aircraft. Uh, which acts as a, a gas station in the sky, 
in in the UK and, and NATO model, uh, you have a, a hose coming out the back of the tanker aircraft with a drogue, looks like a, a shuttlecock you use in, in badminton, um, which passively stabilizes the hose, kind of flaps in the breeze a bit. Um, and then the receiving pilot uh, has a probe on the front of their aircraft and they have to fly the probe into the drogue, couple, refuel, and then go about their business. Um, and the, the purpose of that is, is range extension for an aircraft. Um, so, for example, uh, if you want to take RAF tornadoes to the, the Middle East, uh, they generally refuel over Cyprus uh, and, and, and then you can, you can get there without having to land. Um, but there's the, the, the thing that really attracted me was um, if you can make this safe enough for civil aviation, there's some really big step changes you can make in, in fuel consumption. And when companies like Airbus spend millions and years uh, on, on fractions of a percent drag reduction, um, then, then it, it, it's quite a significant potential um, development. So the, one of the case studies I, I based my justification around was if you take a, a long haul London to Sydney flight, say, and do it in five hops, as opposed to one hop, um, you can use about a third of the fuel that you would use doing it in, in one hop. Um, and the reasons for that are if, if you only need to go a fifth of the distance, you can use a smaller aircraft, which is less draggy and lighter, which needs less fuel, which means you can use a smaller aircraft. And the, the maths kind of spirals down. It's, it's like the opposite of the rocket equation, mm -hmm. where you, you need an extra kilogram of satellite up in, in space, uh, which means you need three kilos of fuel. But that fuel is going to get carried up at least part of the way. So you need another nine kilos of fuel and everything goes exponential. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's my rationale behind the work um, and I, I, I sort of flippantly describe it as um, uh, maybe we can save the world and, and, and stop climate change or at least the aviation sector's contribution towards it but but cynically uh, maybe it'll just make flying cheaper and and we'll do the same amount of it. Um, I, I've only recently found that there's actually an economic term for that and it's been known since the industrial era. It's um, Jevons paradox or okay. Jevons paradox, um, where if you make a process more efficient, less resource intensive, um, nominally with a, a view to reducing resource usage, um, if it also makes it cheaper, it'll increase demand and you'll end up in the same position or even worse. Um, so that's taking my work on an interesting tangent into engineering and technological ethics mm -hmm. which is fascinating I'm, I'm, I'm um, I, I, doing a guest lecture for our uh, business and management programs and things like that it's, it's really really interesting but the, the the actual technical aspects of my PhD were focusing on the sensing and control uh, problem for if you've got um, two vehicles which definitely don't need to come into contact with one another except on a very specific point, um, and you need to position them very, very precisely um, in, in relation to one another. The, the current way, you've got a, a tanker flying straight and level, the receiver does all the work, it's very pilot intensive, uh, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do in the air apart from getting shot at, um, but you, you don't use all of your available degrees of freedom 
if you can add controllability to the drogue, either via um, additional control surfaces or by manipulating the shape of the, the drogue canopy, um, then, uh, I mean, step step one is you can stabilize it and, and hold it um, more steady in the air and make the receiving pilot's job easier. But step two is, is you, you start coupling these systems. So the drogue's chasing the probe at the same time the, ch the probe is chasing the drogue. And then you get this, uh, what's called a cyclic control system. One thing's depending on the other thing, which is depending on the first thing, um, which can lead to more robustness, better probability of success, uh, especially as you get into more adverse weather conditions, things like that. Um, but also has the problem of feedback cycles in, in the system. So you need to manage that and, and it's harder to verify the, the stability and robustness of, of that sort of system, which takes it up to PhD worthy mm -hmm. levels. Um, and because the um, industry partner wanted to be proving this at a higher technology, higher technology readiness level um, than, than just in simulation, we got these giant robot arms um, one was on a 10 meter track. We put sensors on the robots. We had a drogue on one and a probe on the other. Um, and the sensors thought they were on a real aircraft and the robots were moving around following the simulated aircraft. Um, so we had this hybrid testing hardware in the loop system, um, which was to, to validate what we were doing at a higher level um, than, than just in simulation, but without the expense and risk of, of putting aircraft. Wow! Yeah. So it was brilliant. It was yeah. it was super nerdy. It's really cool. It was very visual. The the output from it, uh, and, and I, I really really loved that. Um, the, the next round of funding for that hasn't uh, hasn't come through. The, the it, it was funded as part of um, a UK wide program called Australia, um, and we're still waiting on Australia three funding. So that might progress in future. But I've moved on. Um, my 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 main work here is is focused on teaching. Um, and and uh, the sort of coordination parts of, of that as well. Uh, but I have undergraduate students working on other uses for collaborative control of systems. So at the moment, I have a few students looking at uh, using multiple drones for search and rescue mm -hmm. um, and, and, and how to optimise what they do, given a sort of probability distribution of where you're likely or less likely to find someone, what happens if the information you have changes mid-search, things like that, so all sorts of path planning. Um, and I, I think I'm moving towards a sort of wider drones for good kind of thing, linking in with the interesting engineering ethics stuff that I, I mentioned earlier. Yeah, very multidisciplinary, yeah. Just a follow-up question on that hopping model that you described. So you, you weren't suggesting that you would have smaller aircraft that would stop five times on the way. You were basically saying we can simulate five stops by basically just refueling them five times in the air. Did, that, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, I mean, so, so you, you can do that, and we do do that at the moment. So um, one of the reasons that uh, a long-haul flight with a layover is cheaper is because of less fuel burn. Um, I mean, it's also more inconvenient. So you've got the supply-demand kind of factor yeah. there as well. Um, but also, getting to altitude takes takes a lot of fuel. Uh, taking off with a full fuel load takes a lot of fuel. There's there's multiple factors to it. Um, so if you can have a, a higher fuel-to-airframe ratio for the the tanker only taking off once, if you can reduce the inconvenience to the passengers of, of landing five times and, and the 
increased length of, of flight that you'd have. Um, the, the, there's a load of factors that, that contribute to it. But, but yeah, petrol station in the sky rather than on the ground, sorry, Avgas station in the sky, <laughs> um, is, is an interesting concept. We're, we're nowhere near it. We're, we're, we're a long way away from routine automation of aerial refueling in, in the defence sector, which is uh, far more risk tolerant. Um, but, but longer term, maybe we'll see that. There, there was associated work by other postgrads in the same group as me, um, looking at uh, formation flight of passenger aircraft. So you know how um, migrating birds fly in a V formation. Yeah. They, they do that partly because it's great to be with your mates, but also uh, they get an aerodynamic benefit. It's, it's kind of like slipstreaming on a, on a bike or uh, in, in a car. Um, but you, you get the, the lift benefit as well. You're sitting on a, a trailing vortex a bubble of air behind the um, the lead aircraft and you, you get a, a lift benefit. And they've done that with light aircraft and, and seen a, up to a 5% fuel saving there. And there's other work um, coming out of, or that's now out of, of, of that group, on um, how you route aircraft to, to take advantage of that. So you could have an aircraft taking off from Paris, an aircraft taking off from London. They'll meet at a mathematically optimum point over the Atlantic or over Ireland or something, um, and they'll fly over the Atlantic, and then one will go off to New York, and the other will go off to Philly. And um, wh where do they meet? What combinations of aircraft are most optimum? Um, how, do you, how do you deal with the economics of that? I mean, there's a slight increase in risk um, but, but overall, both of the aircraft benefit from that. But but you might you might see airlines renting out their slipstream at some point, and then yeah, and, and then how do you deal with the safety? We we keep aircraft miles away from each other in the sky for very very good reason at the moment. So yeah. it's a it's a change in the, the the way we deal with stuff, and 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 you need robust assurances that that bringing aircraft close to one another uh, is 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 safe. Uh, and you need to justify the the economic and environmental benefit versus the the risk side of things. Yeah, great. So I mean, so we've talked about some kind of digital aspect. We've talked about sustainability already. Mm -hmm. The kind of the motivation behind your thesis. Both of these topics are very current at the moment, and they also impact your work in terms of educational reform. So. Um, why don't we kind of kick off this conversation about the changing educational landscape about talking about what you think some of the kind of like key skills and tools um, that modern airspace engineers for the 21st century need to have in order to, you know, solve these problems of sustainability, to make sure that we take these steps towards, you know, maybe having this fleet of aircraft that are flying in a V formation. What do you think about um, yeah the changing educational landscape mm. to meet these needs? Well, I'll I'll start just by talking about the existing uh, Great. situation Absolutely. at the moment. We we have a very well developed program uh, at the University of Bristol, um, which aims to produce excellent engineers that can go out and change the world and and, and lead in the future. Um, but there's there's a lot. To it, there's there's all the um, old school in inverted commas Newtonian physics that you you need to understand uh, to to be able to access the the higher stuff, um, and and we're really proud of our, our our program. But it is always changing. I've I've been part of um, the the department as a member of staff now for for ten years now, um, and and even as an undergraduate, a little while longer back. 
Um, I, I saw how it adapted to the changing external climate um, and the, the feedback that we get from, from students and staff year on year. But we're, we're in a world that feels to me like it's changing quite rapidly at the moment. There's, um, there's demands that, that have always kind of been there, but maybe on the back burner, that are really coming to the front, particularly um, this year, 2019, has been a, a really dynamic year in, in, in terms of global priorities. But um, you, you've mentioned climate, and um, I, th I think the University of Bristol was the first to declare a climate emergency. Um, and the entire aerospace department had a massive crisis of identity uh, following that. Now, sustainability in aerospace has been uh, a priority for a long, long time. Um, for the, the, the carbon and environmental aspects and the economic side of things. It's, a, it's an energy intensive uh, way to get around. Um, and there's, there's lots of, of, of motivators for, for improving the efficiency. But um, we're in a world now where we really do need to look at the whole system uh, and, and the effects as a, as a huge, huge priority. The university has the Cabot Institute, which is focused on the environment. Um, and, and we're all contributing in, in, in different ways to, to, to that. Um, but yes, we, we I, I can't see the, the gas turbine side of, of what we teach students going away anytime in the near future. Um, the, there's a lot of work going on on, on improving the efficiency um, of fossil or biofuel based propulsion um, uh, and the, the noise and all the other environmental uh, factors there. But we're, we're at a point where, I don't, I don't think we're there yet, but we can see the tipping point for electric flight uh, and for various other Im improvements in, in, in the way that uh, aircraft work efficiently. So there's, there's two factors there. One is let's improve the tech, let's make battery storage or, or whatever um, energy storage you're going to use more energy dense but sustainable. Um, but also let's look at different ways of doing things. So step change, maybe you'll have to have shorter flights that are, uh, are more efficient, um, or I, I can't even begin to think about how you do a battery change in the air. Mm -hmm. um, but looking at step changes um, is, is, is always as important as, as looking at in incremental improvements. Um, and we're bringing elements of that into the programme. So um, the, the, there's a few units at the moment on... Um, power generation for the 21st, 22nd century mm -hmm. um, and uh, sustainable systems, things like that, um, which have been options for a while. But we're, we're looking at the moment of bringing that into the core curriculum, making sure that every aerospace engineer that graduates has a strong awareness of sustainability, of the global context of, of what we're doing. Um, so that that's a priority that we're looking at right now. Going just a little bit further back when you talked about the, the let's say the jet, jet engine i mean aerospace has been incredibly good at reducing you know try, or trying and actually managing to reduce noise reduce co2 and it's been mostly because of you know political incentives environmental incentives that have allowed engineers to then come up with better solutions but as as you as you rightly put it there seems to be kind of like this tipping point somewhere in the future where we're seeing that electrification will be quite important mm. And um, 
yeah, the engineers of the future will need to have the skills to be able to design and engineer um, these, these systems. So does that mean that perhaps the delivery of uh, engineering education in universities will also change, that we'll be trying to move a little bit away um, from this kind of lecture and listen style? I think you said before we started recording that you like to ask the kind of controversial question, what is a lecture even good for, mm -hmm. right? So if I was to basically uh, throw that back at you, what is a lecture good for? So those two things link quite nicely, actually. The, I, when you were talking about um, the aviation industry uh, being more sustainable, it, it made me think um, 10 years ago when video conferencing and, and things like that was, was becoming all the rage, then no one was going to travel anymore. Business would all be conducted over the internet, face-to-face -face over, over video links, and um, that hasn't really happened, yeah? And in, in my experience, now I'm collaborating more internationally, um, it, it's still not the same as being there. And, and, and even with like new VR techniques and things like that, it, I think that, that there'll always be uh, reasons, maybe justifiable reasons for, for people to be in the same place uh, because in the end it's all about people interacting. Now, coming back to the university, um, universities uh, are, are dual purpose. They're, they're research, we want to advance the frontiers of human knowledge and understanding and develop new techniques for, for all of these different reasons. Um, and we want to uh, provide a place for people to come and be inspired and educated by that, be able to learn um, at the cutting edge of their field. Um, and that has always meant bringing people into one place. Um, now we're, we're in a world, again, linking to the video conferencing sort of things, where you don't necessarily need to have a few hundred people in one room with one person dispensing information from the front of the room. The university and the department are looking at and, and dabbling in um, other modes of delivery. Um, I'm looking at mixed media for, for teaching, so some, sometimes I lecture, sometimes I ask students to, to watch a video or engage with something before the lecture, and then that turns that time that we have in the lecture theatre into a much more interactive opportunity. I've, I've dabbled with flipping the classroom video lectures um, and and actually it's led me to believe that for a lot of purposes lecturing is not an efficient form of content dissemination. It used to be but now we can capture people and put a pause button next to them um, and, and edit what they're saying and, and be more efficient in, in what we put in that piece of media. Um, I've found that what I would normally take 50 minutes in a lecture to do, I can condense into maybe four or five five-minute videos because I can deliver it more intensively. I can edit what I'm saying, so I'm not umming and ahhing and repeating myself. Um, I can provide resources alongside, and I can structure things in a way that allows students to self-pace rather than going at my pace. So the stuff they already know, they can fast-forward through. The stuff they need to review, they can they can go over and over again. But but there's there's more that we can do. We we, we can look at um, opening up the stuff that we give people um, to a much wider audience. Maybe people that that can't dedicate Monday to Friday nine till five uh, to be 
in lectures, um, uh, and that aligns with a lot of the other um, important aspects of our, our new strategy as a university. We have a civic responsibility to engage with and support the, the city that we live in, um, and we have a global responsibility um, to, to both to the environment and to the, the people um, in, in, in the world. We're also looking at the interdi interdisciplinarity of um, what we do. The, I, I made an observation a while back, which um, I think I stand by, that you could walk into a, a first year statics and dynamics lecture and, and not know whether it's an aerospace lecture, a civil engineering lecture, mm -hmm. or, or a mechanical engineering lecture. Um, and, and the maths that you use for the bending of a bridge or the bending of a wing is very, very similar. So when you're teaching it at the fundamental abstract level, um, there's a lot of commonality and um, possibly some wasted energy in, in people working out how to best teach that three or more times in, in parallel. So we're, we're currently looking at uh, the first year of our physical engineering programs, aero, civil, mech, engineering, design, um, and, and looking at how we can harness that commonality. Um, I, I think there's still a strong case for disciplinary identity, but certainly having those students engaging with one another early on in the programme um, represents how the real world mm -hmm. works. Airbus, yeah. I expect, employs as many mechanical and electrical engineers as it does aerospace Probably, engineers. Yes, yeah. um, and we need to get people talking and, and, and looking at the interfaces between those, those disciplines. Th those are the tricky problems, yeah. I think. I guess all engineering disciplines have this kind of, the fundamentals that are often the same. As mm. you talked about statics, dynamics, mathematics, a lot of them are the same. Mm. And then there's an aspect of specialization. And I guess different universities, even in the UK, do it slightly differently. For example, mm. I did my undergrad at Bath University, and there it was exactly it was as you described. Everybody did the two years, the two years were common, mm. and then you decided to specialize in mechenj, aero, biomedical, sports, whatever. Mm. While other universities like Bristol have gone down the kind of more specialized from the beginning route. Mm. And yeah. There, there, are, there, are, there are benefits to both approaches and it's sometimes difficult teasing out what we need going going forward. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and there's the, this is the way we have done it kind of thing as well. Um, we're, we're not designing something from scratch. We have some really good, really well-established programs that work, that mm -hmm. get great ratings from students, great ratings from employers. Um, so there's a risk in that as well. Yeah. yeah? yeah. If, if you're going to change something that works really well, you need to really have a justification and, and make sure you've done your homework. Yep. And alongside that, there's there's change in the way that we're looking at how we do things at a university level. So we have um, the, I was going to say new, but it's becoming fairly well established now, the Bristol Institute for Learning and Teaching. Um, we have uh, quite a, a significant um, development of sort of the, the Bristol curriculum, the, the, the way that we um, want to deliver stuff and the skills that we want to see all of our graduates across all of our disciplines uh, come out with. So Bristol Futures um, is looking at the innovation, the sustainability and the sort of global citizenship of our students. The, the, the new Bristol curriculum is looking at different ways of delivering stuff. There's a movement towards um, programme level assessment, it's called. Now that um, means very specific things to different people. Um, but 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 to me, it's it's looking at um, actually to, to to be an engineer, you need to use all of your skills at once, rather than 
sitting in a structures lecture and then sitting in a maths lecture or yeah. whatever. Let's dive into this assessment bit because yeah. I know you're quite passionate about this as well. So the typical assessment in engineering is you go to lectures, you know, you know your stuff, you go to the exam and you perform or you basically do some coursework. Mm. How... Why is this not a good idea? What are the skills that a, mm -hmm. a test like this actually tests for and what does it not test for? And how can we actually do this better? So I've spoken about lectures. Um, the only thing I'll add is, is I have seen some excellent lectures from our colleagues. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't continue to do what we do really well, really well. Mm -hmm. um, but we should also look at whether that is still the best choice for, for what we're doing. And, and if it is, great, carry on. Um, exams, I, I'm quite opinionated about. Now, we as an institution are still fairly exams focused. Um, I, I don't think you could justify 100% exam uh, assessed engineering or, or anything for anybody because it, it is a very specific uh, type of assessment mm -hmm. um, that... that looks at specific skills and, and doesn't look at others. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's a, an authentic assessment of whether you're a good engineer or not, because there's so many different things than sitting, recalling facts and using the, the sort of tools that we've given you in a, a finite amount of time mm -hmm. without access to all of the resources that are easily available in the real world. So we, we need to look at what we want our graduates to be able to do uh, and communicate is one of them. Um, analyze and use the the toolbox of, of, of things that we've given them in unfamiliar situations, um, collaborate with different disciplines, that sort of thing. So, so thinking about what the best way of um, getting students to showcase that. But then we still largely assess at a unit level. Assessments are attached to units, um, which leads to this kind of siloed approach. Yeah, structures, materials, uh, dynamics and control, sensors, um, maths, which, although it's an important discipline in its own, for an engineer, it's largely a tool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so we're starting to look at how, how you can assess those interfaces, um, we're, we're looking at um, whether you can draw on uh, area A and area B and develop an assessment that assesses all or parts of both of them, makes for a much more complicated kind of mapping diagram, yeah. but if it's more realistic and it, it leads to um, both students being able to showcase those skills and during the programme be motivated to develop those skills, then it's, it's worth the, the, the effort. Yeah, I mean this discussion actually highlights one of these paradoxes that I find quite um, interesting in that as a technology evolves, let's mm. say aerospace engineering evolves, um, it becomes a bit basically harder and harder to keep up to date with all the technology in, at all, in all aspects mm. of the field, right? So you get more and more specialization in aerodynamics and structures, in ergonomics, etc. And so there's almost uh, there's an incentive to teach students more and more in one field, uh, in one silo, basically, of that um, subject. But at the same time, the technology or the field is getting more and more complex. Mm -hmm. And then to understand complex systems, you need to know everything. You need to know at least the fundamentals of all of the little aspects mm -hmm. that make the field. And so there's this 
there's this kind of, yeah, this tug of war between trying to specialize so that you can contribute towards a, a subfield, mm. um, but at the same time making sure that you can integrate the knowledge that you've developed in all the other fields so that you can actually operate as a successful engineer in general. And I think this tug of war is kind of like uh, playing itself out in, mm. this, in this way of uh, how do we actually assess students. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to give students a cutting edge education and, and we have the resource to do that because the people that are teaching them are the people that are inventing the, the next level of, 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 of where the, the sector is headed. Um, but if you're going to add that stuff with a finite number of years, number of hours with our students, what has to give? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We still need to teach our students the sort of Newtonian fundamentals um, and the the basic mathematical and physical toolbox of, of, of what they do to be able to access that stuff. But if we want to teach other things, we want to bring new things into the course, all of these sustainability and um, digitization considerations that, that, that we've talked about, um, where does that time come from? Yeah. Well, Steve, I really appreciate your time today. Before we sign off, I just want to give you the opportunity to point our listeners to all the cool things that you're doing online. You're you're involved in a podcast as well, so mm. maybe give that a plug. Um, where can listeners find more about what you're up to? So um, search for me, Steve Bullock, Bristol University, and, and you'll find bits and bobs on the web. I have a, a website that doesn't have much on it at the moment, uh, so ignore that until I get time to update it. Um, my One of my podcasts that I am part of uh, is called The Cosmic Shed. Tagline is science fact, science fiction, and everything in between. Uh, we watch nerdy movies. We interview academics about the science behind them. Um, there's some really good episodes uh, coming up recently uh, in, in the near future. Um, we've got one on Chernobyl, the, the TV series. Mm -hmm. uh, we've we've had some stuff on old classic films like um, Tron and Contact and, and things like that, uh, and 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 newer stuff. So check out the Cosmic Shed on. Uh, whatever your favourite podcast listening app is. Um, what else? Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what my students come up with uh, over the next six to eight months in the new STEM communications unit. That's a, a new thing for Bristol Uni and, and hopefully we'll, we'll grow and grow. Hoping to collaborate with um, other other people engaged in the, the science communication field. Uh, the, the, there's a few that uh, I've been emailing and I'll let you know who we end up uh, getting involved there. Um, obviously, you're going to come yeah, along and, and talk to our students about podcasts. Absolutely. Um, and then the other the other side of my job, which we haven't even touched on, is I have a responsibility for um, our widening participation work across the Faculty of Engineering through all of our disciplines. Um, so we, we have some exciting new outreach uh, provision. We have a, a, a new colleague who's... Uh, really increased our capacity in that, trained up a lot of students. Um, so if again, if you search for University of Bristol Engineering Outreach, um, you can get in touch with us and, and get that into your school or come and see us. Uh, we have a bunch of different programs on, on, on that and, and they're all focused on uh, inspiring young people to, to consider engineering. It's There's not a lot of awareness in, in a lot of schools about what engineering as a field is and promoting access to higher education for, for people from all backgrounds 
Um, so have a, have a look there and, and, and see what we've got to offer there. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely be putting links to outreach pages and everything on the Aerospace Engineering blog. Well, uh, it's been an absolutely pleasure talking to you, Steve, and maybe next time we'll have to speak about your outreach work. <laughs> um, but thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. It's great. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really, really interesting talking about all this stuff. If you would like to learn more about Steve's work and research, then head over to aerospaceengineeringblog.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode. And if you enjoy the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, then there are a number of ways you can support it. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share on social media with your friends and family, or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.